Hey, what's up on the podcast? This is Shaquem Ryan. I'm coming to you live with another podcast. So I'm going to start today's podcast with another story off the COVID blog. Shout out to the COVIDblog.com. Everybody needs to make sure they subscribe to their website because they're definitely putting out a lot of factual information out here. So um, this article is talking about Kirstie Hext, a 26-year-old British woman suffers 14 anaphylactic shocks in a month since second Pfizer mRNA dose encourages others to get the shots. So it says here, a 26-year-old senior care worker is fighting for her life in what sounds like total and likely permanent loss of normal physiological functions. Ms. Kirsty Hex received her first dose of experimental Pfizer mRNA on January 30th, 2021. Two glaring issues stick out. First, she received the second dose on April 28th at Waterlooville Medical Center, nearly three months after the first one. The doses are supposed to be three weeks apart. Second, her name is listed as Kirsty Petit on the vaccine card. All right, this is the vaccine card right here. Okay. Um, needless or regardless, she apparently suffered no adverse reactions after the first shot. That changed dramatically with the second one. Her lips and tongue swelled, and she began gasping for air less than 30 minutes after the second shot. Miss Hex also had a seizure. <clears throat> she was rushed to the emergency room, where she also started vomiting. She was placed on oxygen and a nebulizer. Ms. Hext was also given antihistamines and adrenaline epinephrine shots, which most people associate with EpiPens. She had no known allergies prior to the shot. Things got much worse from there. Ms. Hext experienced four more anaphylactic shocks that day alone, according to Coventry Live. Doctors administered adrenaline shots after each episode. One news outlet reported that she was placed in a medically induced coma. Doctors transferred her to the intensive care unit at Queen Alexandria Hospital in Portsmouth that day. She suffered five more anaphylactic shocks by May 2nd. At one point, Ms. Hex called and asked her sister if she could raise her two-year-old daughter if she dies. The hospital discharged her with a bunch of several on May 5th. Doctors felt it was safe for her to go home since she went three days without another anaphylactic shock, but that was short-lived. Ms. Hext had a major dizzy spell and, flat and, fl and fell down a flight of stairs outside her home. She fractured her wrist, her leg, and her cheekbone as a result. Things continue to get worse. Miss Hex suffered yet another seizure and was readmitted to the hospital on or around May 9th. She has suffered at least five more. Anaphylactic shots since that time and remains in the hospital as of publishing. Despite being hospital ridden for the foreseeable future and having a truly terrifying experience, as she said, Ms. Hex said it's important for everyone to get their jabs. She continues praising the experimental shots. 
even though I have nearly died several times since getting vaccinated, I work in the care sector myself and I know how important it is. I want people to remember that reactions like mine are very rare. And just because I have had a bad reaction doesn't mean everyone else will too. Vaccinations save lives, end quote. A medicines and healthcare products regulatory agency, MHRA spokesperson, said they are sorry to hear about Kirsty. The statement concluded everyone should get their vaccination when asked to do so, unless specifically advised otherwise. Indoctrination plus mind control. We're long past feeling sorry for these types. This blog started out trying to be sympathetic to these types of people, but these are insane levels of Stockholm syndrome. Granted, the CIA, via its MK Ultra Project Monarch program, has been carrying out mass mind control for decades, but most of those victims were physically abused until they obeyed. There's also the silent sound mind control weapons, U.S. Patent 5159703, that have been around since at least the 1990s. We've covered enough of these stories to establish patterns. Only the strong and intelligent will survive this great human purge. Again, this blogger is quite curious to see what the world will be like in the next five years, but the next five months are likely to be the deadliest of all. We won't be able to keep up with every death. All you can do is stay vigilant and protect your loved ones and friends. Okay, what an article. What an article. What an article. Um, yes, we've seen this happen many, many, many times, people, even people that have nearly died from the vaccine. Um, they will continue to tell people, like, hey, you guys still should get vaccinated. It's important. And, you know, it saves lives, even when their life is under threat or in danger, um, because that is what we call cognitive dissonance. So for somebody that got the vaccine, they're obviously pro-vaccine, obviously believed in vaccines, obviously believed in everything the media told them. And that is why they were so early to sign up for this particular medical experiment. And because they're having an adverse reaction, they simply can't rationalize the reality that this vaccine has caused their death. Now, we also have to report another death today. Unfortunately, we got a report about Lyanne Eric, a 50-year-old Canadian woman dead seven days after experimental Pfizer mRNA injection. A 50-year-old wife and mother is dead after trying to stay positive for the remainder of her short post-injection life. Mrs. Lene Eric received the first dose of the experimental Pfizer mRNA injection on May 17th, according to her Facebook page. She first said the shot was AstraZeneca, but corrected herself in the comments section. Mrs. Eric immediately reported a sore arm and fatigue. This is her Facebook post right here on May 17th, which says, I got my shot today. Two side effects, arm is sore and extremely tired. Her condition progressively worsened over the next week. While she posted many positive messages, as was obviously her nature and normal self, Mrs. Eric was suffering. She said her neck was sore and she could not stay awake at all. 
Mrs. Eric posted a very sad update on Saturday, May 22nd, five days later. She said, love, positive, but I really wish I didn't get this shot. The foregoing post has since been deleted. Many friends and relatives started expressing concern. One suggested she take colloidal silver. Another told her to call 811, a health advice line in Canada. But she continued suffering profusely, apparently without relief. Mrs. Eric said Sunday, May 23rd, was even worse than all previous days. She said she has never felt so crappy. First, but my neck hurts so bad and just can't stay awake. She posted one final update on Sunday, May 23rd. Happy Sunday. Mrs. Eric passed away the following Monday morning, May 24th. She is survived by her husband and a 12-year-old daughter. A GoFundMe page is collecting funds on behalf of Mrs. Eric's daughter. Friend pushes coincidence narrative. The canned regurgitated rhetoric from compromised doctors and mainstream media is expected. No need to post it all yet again here. But Miss Amanda Stevenson, a close friend of Mrs. Eric, is on a mission to deflect all attention away from Pfizer. She told Kelowna Capital News that Mrs. Eric suffered health conditions, serious health conditions. Miss Stevenson said her friend died from her illness, not from the Pfizer injection. She did not specify the now mystery illness. Mrs. Eric also did not speak of any type of pre-existing illness in her very open, honest last days on Facebook. Ms. Stevenson says she is not disclosing the exact illness out of respect to the family. Ms. Stevenson did a live Facebook broadcast on May 25th. She cried and said, do not assume what you do not know. Ms. Stevenson conceded her friend had the experimental Pfizer shot shortly before her death, but she said people should not say nasty things and do not post about her if you don't know her. It is not the time. It's bullshit. Stop it. She also said, if you see any post that her vaccine killed her, you can stop it in its tracks. Shame on you. The most disturbing part of the Kelowna Capital News story is about Mrs. Eric's widower and daughter. Both of them received their first, their first doses of experimental Pfizer mRNA on May 28th, just four days after Mrs. Eric's death. Duty to report. Whether Amanda Stevenson likes it or not, Mrs. Eric's death, death is a matter of public concern. Many people across the globe are either being forced to receive experimental shots or are volunteering without informed consent. Further, Ms. Eric said she'd wish she had never got the shot. We pleaded with the public to stop posting their I've been vaccinated virtue signaling on social media. The moment you do that, we, can, we screenshot it and continually follow up. Sadly, many of them thus far have ended in death shortly thereafter or very serious adverse reactions. It appears our work, the work of many great frontline courageous doctors and the work of other bloggers and bloggers is working. All the low-hanging fruit has received experimental shots, forcing critical thinkers to inject themselves with poison. Is not gonna work? It's only going to cause many Americans to further exercise First and Second Amendment rights. Stay vigilant and protect your family, your friends, and your loved ones. Yes, very, very well said. Uh, I will say, hmm, 
You mean to tell me that the lady said herself she wished she didn't get the shot and just happened to die within a week. And then you got people coming out here trying to tell people, no, it's not the shot. And then you're telling me the the father and the son um, ended up going to get the shot after that. That makes no sense. But you know what? You know, let people die. If people want to, if people want to hold on to their vaccine, God, Pfizer or Moderna, AstraZeneca or Johnson and Johnson, whoever, it makes me no difference at this point because people are going to continue to be low hanging fruit, as this article said. So the low hanging fruit are going to sign up for their own death. Makes me no difference. Um, now I do want to um, touch on something that I, I actually got off Robert. Kennedy Jr.'s Defender podcast, he interviewed a woman whose 17-year-old um, son got the Pfizer shot. And I didn't even know that her husband also got the shot. So it's a very disturbing story about their adverse reactions to this vaccine. So um, let me just pull that up. I'm going to just play a short snippet of it. If you've never um, heard of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I'm sure you have. He has a podcast called The Defender. So definitely, definitely check out the full podcast. It's only about 35 minutes long, and I definitely enjoyed listening to it earlier. But it was just shocking to to hear this. So, so yeah, let's pull that up. Um, the title of that particular podcast is Back to Injured Team Athlete with Sherry Romney. I'm joined today by Sherry Romney from Draper U. So my son actually got the Pfizer vaccine and my husband got the Moderna vaccine. But I've been doing quite a lot of research and from what I understand, they're the same mechanism. They're different manufacturers, but the same mechanism. So they're this, they're both of them are mRNA drugs. And so they, they, they interact with your system pretty much the same. It almost doesn't matter who manufactures it. So, but they did get different vaccines, but on exactly the same day. And have you found a doctor who is actually sympathetic and is? Let me tell you what, the, the first seven and a half days at the hospital, the doctors were looking for anything and everything besides the vaccine. They absolutely were hesitant and very, really didn't want to put this together with the vaccine. They were very resistant to that. They looked at the most obscure of illnesses. They tried so hard to put like a, you know, a, a round peg in a square hole and it wasn't working. And finally on the last day they said, okay, yeah, we think this may have something to do with the vaccine. Finally, like probably a couple hours before we left was the first time they actually finally admitted really. When my husband went in, his physician said he actually, he refused to do one of the antibody tests that is more indicative of whether or not when my husband got the shot, he might already have had COVID because we did find out that my son had already been exposed to COVID. So what we do know is that thromboses are more common and we know this just already from how many shots been given. If you get the shot, when you have a lot of antibodies to COVID already. In other words, if you had a fairly recent case of COVID. Having said that, my son was tested every other week because he's an athlete so he could play and it came back negative. So we're trusting these tests that are not very useful to us. 
we took him in to get to get the shot because we thought that's what was best for him. We had no idea he had been exposed to COVID, none whatsoever. He had never gotten a positive test. He hadn't gotten sick. Same thing with my husband. When we took them in for the shot, they were not sick. There were no fevers. In fact, I come from a pretty medical family. I've got lots of physicians that are siblings and my dad. I was so careful. I checked their temperatures before we all went in. Like no one was sick, no sore throats, nothing like that. But um, the doctor at my husband's hospital said he did think it was highly suspicious that both my husband and my son following the jab got blood clots. So- Are they both in the hospital today? Say that again? Are they both still in the hospital? No, my son has, my, my, both of them have now been released. My husband was released last night. They're stable. Their condition, my, my husband's lung loss, tissue loss is permanent. My son's damage to his brain is unknown. We're hopeful that it's all going to be okay. But right now we won't know until those blood clots recede and they can actually look at the rest of his brain. And he's got so much swelling right now that it affects his vision and they can't, they don't really know um, how much of that would be, will be permanent. So they've both been released to my care and they're just being watched carefully. And then they sleep kind of all day and they just need help getting around a little bit, but they are both home. We're, we're so grateful they're both home. I do, I do want to say all right, so you guys just saw that. Um, again, that is the Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the Defender podcast, an excellent, excellent podcast, one of my favorites. And yeah, this woman um, had her her nine, her seventeen year old son, who's a, a six foot six basketball player, go get vaccinated with Pfizer, and then her husband got the Moderna shot, and so they found out once he went to the hospital and got tested later that the the child had already been exposed to covid but he had regular covid tests and never came back positive so that once again just shows you how these tests are just completely useless as we've talked about before the creator of the pcr test said before that those tests were never designed to confirm an infection um what was interesting about this is that we're talking about a child and now the vaccine injury is rolling to the children and the young. And we have somebody here who's a perfectly at athletic, healthy, young athlete who's now having two brain clots, blood clots in his brain. And now he can barely go to the bathroom on his own. And the same thing happened with her husband. She is six months pregnant, about to have a baby, and now her husband has lost a fourth of one of his lungs, has over 100 blood clots in his lungs. And we don't know. The scary thing about blood clots is that they can always travel. They can always come back. You know, it's, it's never safe when you have blood clotting because they can travel very easily. So, you know, it's very scary, very unfortunate that this woman um, definitely kind of participated in the destruction of the health of her son and her husband. And this is why it's so important to, you know, always do your research. That's all you got to do is just do a little bit of research. So another breaking news story is that a Texas hospital has been sued by 117 employees for requiring COVID to work. So it says here, a Texas hospital has been sued by a group of more than 100 medical workers who allege that a requirement that they receive COVID-19 vaccine forces them to be human guinea pigs. 
The overwhelming majority of employees at Houston Methodist have already been vaccinated against the virus, while the hospital has set a June 7th deadline for stragglers to get inoculated or risk losing their jobs. Attorney Gerald Woodfield says he is representing a group of 117 employees suing the hospital for illegally requiring its employees to be injected with an experimental vaccine as a condition of the employment. According to a Friday report from the local ABC station KTRK, for the first time in the history of the United States, an employer is forcing an employee to participate in an experimental vaccine trial as a condition for continued employment, the lawsuit reportedly states. This, the suit asserts that the hospital is violating the Nuremberg Code with the vaccine mandate, comparing medical workers being required to take widely used vaccines approved for emergency use by the Food and Drug Administration to Jews and others suffering as victims of barbaric medical experiments in Nazi Germany. Since 2009, Houston Methodist has required its employees to choose between being vaccinated against the flu or finding employment elsewhere. Nurse Jennifer Bridges, who has worked for the hospital for more than six years, vowed to sue over the COVID-19 mandate last month. It's not fair to be forced to inject something that we're not comfortable with, Bridges told CBS affiliate KHOU in April. I think our rights as human beings is more important than keeping that job. If I am blacklisted, whatever it takes, I will go find another form of employment. Dr. Mark Bloom, president and CEO of Houston, disputes the premise of the suit. Bloom says it is legal for hospitals to mandate vaccines. He insists that vaccines have been proven through rigorous trials to be very safe and very effective and are not experimental, while noting that 165 million Americans have been vaccinated and COVID-19 infections have plummeted as a result. As of today, 99% of Houston's Methodist, 26,000 employees have met the requirements for the vaccination mandate. We're extremely proud of our employees for doing the right thing and protecting our patients from this deadly virus. It is unfortunate that the few remaining employees who refuse to get vaccinated and put our patients first are responding in this way. All right, so shout out to the people suing that Texas hospital because they're definitely out of fucking bounds. And I don't think anybody, I don't give a fuck what job it is, what school it is. There should be no vaccine mandates, period. You should never have to be injected with a poison or an ex in this case, an experimental vaccine in order to keep your job. And this is not the first time that this has been reported. This has been reported numerous, numerous times where people have been forcibly injected or forced to have to choose between this experimental injection and between their job. And when you really have to choose between how you're going to eat and whether or not you want your health, that is when your consciousness, your true consciousness of who you are, of what you stand for, of why you're here, what your purpose is, and how much you value your life in the long term. Because that job is here today, gone tomorrow. There's always going to be another opportunity for you to make money. But a lot of these people, when they've been working at a hospital or a, a particular location for a long time, they get very, very comfortable and they like to stay there. You know, once you have a check coming in every two weeks or every week, you get comfortable, you get complacent. And the fear, the fight or flight mechanism, oh, well, what am I going to do if 
I can't get another job. So let me just hurry up and risk my health, my body. You only get one body, people, and it's not worth it. So shout out to those uh, particular people. Now, here's another interesting article from uh, the Mercury News. So it says, despite the lure, the lure of $1.5 million, no stampede to get shots at Bay Area vaccine sites. A steady trickle of traffic flowed into Bay Area vaccination sites on Friday, a day after the state's announcement of financial incentives to get jabbed. But trying to find a person for whom the promise of $50 and a chance at more than a million dollars had pushed them over the edge to get a shot was on par with hunting for a unicorn. Most people at the sites, including the volunteers, hadn't even heard of the $116 million program, which Governor Gavin Newsom unveiled to great fanfare Thursday as part of a growing trend of vaccine giveaways to nudge more hesitant Americans to get a COVID-19 shot. Named Vax for the Win, California's program will provide $50 cash or grocery cards to the next 2 million Californians who get vaccinated and will enter all vaccinated residents into drawings for cash prizes of 50,000 and 1.5 million. Sounds like a win-win to me, said Brian Friend, 36, pleasantly surprised to learn he could score big bucks while getting his second shot Friday at Zuckerberg's San Francisco General Hospital. The lack of awareness didn't surprise vaccine site volunteers. State announcements take time to trickle down to the public, they said, not to mention that the Wednesday mass shooting in San Jose is still crowding the airwaves, leaving little room for Newsom's announcement to break through. But it is also unclear how much of a difference the cash and symptoms will make to those who are still holding out. Rosa Ramirez, 49, had waited to be vaccinated due to fear about potential side effects. But on Friday morning, with her fully vaccinated sister, Mara Huerta, by her side, she had finally worked up the courage to get her first shot at San Francisco General Hospital. The pair was one of the few attendees to know about California's giveaways, but the money didn't play into Ramirez's decision. I do not care. Ramirez said in Spanish, preemptively massaging her arm while waiting in line. Dr. Peter Chen Hong, an infectious disease expert at UCSF, said Newsom's incentive is likely to only work in certain categories of holdouts. $50 is unlikely to change the minds of those who are dead set against the vaccine. I don't think California is expecting everyone to suddenly run out and get vaccinated. All right. Now, it gets even better, people. So now there is a new agency that is saying that U.S. companies can mandate vaccinations, according to a federal agency. So it says U.S. companies can mandate the that employees must be vaccinated against COVID-19. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission announced in a Friday statement. Federal equal opportunity laws do not prevent lawyers, employers from requiring that all employees physically entering a workplace be vaccinated as long as employers comply with the reasonable accommodation provisions of the Americans with Disabilities Act and other laws, according to the statement. Employers may also offer incentives to employees to get vaccinated as long as the incentives are not coercive. 
The updated technical assistance released today addresses frequently asked questions concerning vaccinations in the employment context. The EOC will continue to clarify and update our COVID-19 technical assistance to ensure that we are providing the public with clear, easy to understand and helpful information. Isn't that crazy? So now the, the so-called agency that's supposed to care about equal opportunity when it comes to employment is going to tell people that legally their employers can tell them that they have to get vaccinated. Make it make sense, people. Makes no sense. So yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous how far they're going with this um, injection. They're going so far with this, um, but that's okay. It's okay because you know they can try to mandate it. They can try to do everything. That's why I work remotely. That's exactly why I'm glad I work at home because no, nobody's gonna try to force me to get anything. So, so yeah. Um, let's continue. All right, now we have an update on Africa because you know they cannot wait to go try to vaccinate Africa, but of course they spent their money first on, you know, first world countries and then they'll get to Africa later. So France, the very same country that just admitted yesterday that it participated in the genocide of over 800,000 Africans in Rwanda, now says they want to assist with their vaccine drive. France will strive to help vaccinate 40% of Africa's population by the end of the year, French President Emmanuel Macron said on Saturday, May 29th, during an official visit in South Africa. He pledged to invest in boosting the continent's production of COVID-19 vaccines to help close the gap between African and Western nations. As long as we haven't vaccinated everywhere, we are exposed to a risk because that means the epidemic could continue to spread among the most impoverished that mutations could arise and they come back up. So that is, of course, this is, of course, in our interest. And so I want to set this goal in Africa to have 40% of the population vaccinated by the end of the year and in coordination with Africa to have 60% by May 22. Macron said Africa made up 20% of the world's needs for vaccines, but only 1% of the production. France plans to deliver 30 million doses to the continent by the year end, part of more than 100 million doses that the European plans to deliver this year. So, of course, here goes France, <clears throat> the European Union. Everybody is going to continue to do everything they can to try to um, destroy the African genetics. <clears throat> and keep in mind that, you know, Africa has over a billion people. So, if you really think you're going to vaccinate about 500 million to 700 million people within a year, it's not gonna work. It's just not gonna work. Um, but they're so desperate to make it happen. And they're letting you know they wanna kill 60% of the Africans if they can vaccinate 60% of them. But it's not gonna work. All praise to God, doesn't matter what they try. <clears throat> um, now, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, 
Now, Ted Cruz has introduced a bill to ban the federal government from using vaccine passports. So, <clears throat> it says here, at least 10 states already have bills or executive orders banning vaccine passports. The three Republican senators have introduced a bill have introduced a bill to ban the federal government from establishing COVID-19 vaccine passports following in the steps of at least 10 GOP-led states. Americans shouldn't be discriminated against because of the COVID-19 vaccine status, whether that is at work or in everyday life. All right. So these states have banned vaccine passports, Alabama, Arizona, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Montana, South Carolina, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. Vaccine passports are becoming increasingly common internationally. The European Union will require Americans traveling to the UE this summer to provide proof they are fully vaccinated. All right. So I want to wrap this up with an, one more article, which is called The, the Fall of St. Fauci. All right. <clears throat> so. I'm gonna read it because they do have an audio, but I don't wanna take too long um, with, this, with this article. I wanna hurry up and get, get through it. So it says, on the unforced errors of America's most political doctor, in mid-March of 2020, most Americans, including those in the White House, were still trying to understand the COVID-19 crisis unfolding around them. In the span of 24 hours, the NBA came to a sudden halt when players tested positive for the virus. Seemingly, minutes later, the American actor Tom Hanks announced from Australia that he and his wife, Rita Wilson, had this mysterious new illness. Stock markets crashed around the world. President Donald Trump declared a pause on travel from Europe, and the World Health Organization belatedly labeled the spread of the coronavirus a pandemic. On March 16th, the Trump White House called for 15 days to slow the spread of the virus, a lockdown. The White House Coronavirus Task Force was meeting regularly and issuing daily briefings at that time. In the Situation Room, economic advisors began presenting their models and predictions for the economics of economic effects of lockdown to the task force, including its leader, Vice President Mike Pence and the President. What the advisors reported was shocking. Just four weeks of lockdown will lead to millions of Americans unemployed, extreme burdens on the public purse, and, and the greatest one-month contraction of the American economy since the, greatest, since the Great Depression. A health advisor present said that as the lights came up following the presentation, the faces of most of the advisors in the room were ashen. The gravity of what had just been said all of which shortly came to pass, seemed to have stunned everyone into silence, except one man, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, the NIAD, immediately turned to Vice President Pence and asked a question that appeared to dismiss not only the imminent miseries of lockdown, but the relevance of the entire subject from the proceedings. I'm still in charge, right? More or less, yes, Fauci was still in charge, and yes, and he still is, though he has spent the weeks before that day giving interviews 
in which he told Americans to be more concerned about the seasonal flu than the coronavirus and that the wearing of masks by the public will be useless at protecting them from it, Fauci was cast as the face of America's best pandemic response, the one figure who took it seriously. Fauci was the anti-Trump, possessed of a quaint fondness for facts and evidence-based science, according to the New York Times. Trump's biggest supporters, sensing that Fauci was delighting in this role and despairing as they were of lockdowns, turned on the doctor demanding he be fired. The White House began treating the administration's most prominent medical expert as a threat, circulating anti-Fauci talking points, which made progressives embrace him all the more. On social media, your liberal friends call their COVID-19 vaccine shots their Fauci OGs. Fauci became the latest warrior saint of the resistance, holding aloft the banner of science and reason. Fauci joined the National Institutes of Health soon after graduating from medical school. He was a pioneering researcher on infectious disease such as lymphomatoid, granulomatosis, and polyuritis medosa. He then moved into studying AIDS. He became the director of the NIAD in 1984 and has held that position ever since. Fauci first achieved something like a public profile during the AIDS crisis, becoming a hated figure among progressive gay activists who viewed him as an antagonist for his slowness and unwillingness to approve therapeutic drugs. Later though, after Fauci relented, the playwright and activist Larry Kramer of the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power held him up as a hero and a friend. Fauci's effort to win over activists has been described as a charm, offensive, that included wine-soaked dinners. The Washington Post said that it was during this phase of his career that Fauci learned his strategy of doing prolonged media blitzes, with Fauci playing a congenial doctor on television and framing all political issues as mere matters of science. Politicians could, according to the Post, launder credibility through him, all the while holding at a distance the more radioactive elements of any crisis. The doctor said that he learned not to be political. It's when you get into the politics that you get into trouble, Fauci said to the reporter Molly Roberts last year. She summed up his achievement as having brokered a generational peace between science and partisan politics. But there was a price to be paid. In his AIDS memoir, Body Counts, Sean Strub points out that Fauci used his insistence on bulletproof studies to justify his mullish slowness in response to the AIDS crisis, including his fateful hesitancy to authorize therapeutic treatments for the diseases that were killing those who suffer from AIDS. Gay men turned to buyer's clubs to get the drugs that their own desperate research indicated they needed. As Shrub notes, by 1989, when the government approved a prophylaxis for pneumocystis carnirine pneumonia, which affects people with weakened immune systems such as those with HIV, 30,534 people in the United States had died from a preventable disease over the previous decade. Michael Callan, an AIDS activist who eventually died of the disease, estimated 16,929 of them had died between the time he went to plead for Fauci support and more than two years later when the guidelines were finally issued, Shrub writes. Some of the themes 
Shrub delineates and Fauci's conduct during the AIDS crisis seem to be repeated in COVID. The prioritization of a vaccine over therapeutic treatments, a refusal to take bold action in the face of a crisis, and a bureaucrat's comfort with a slow process of updating guidance, even as people languish or die. The saving difference is that this time the vaccines came through remarkably quickly. Fauci is an unusually hardy and long-lived survivor in Washington. But the people who look up to him as merely America's doctor or a mere public health advisor may not quite understand the power wielded by the National Institutes of Health and his agency within it. National Institute of Health dispenses up to $32 billion a year for biological and medical research, much of the funding in the form of long-term grants that are not just necessary for worthwhile scientific research, but desperately needed for researchers' academic job security. In the United States, biologists, biologists and other medical researchers whose grant proposals are approved are usually expected by their universities to cover their own costs, including salary for research teams. The NIH and its decisions about who gets funding and for what is why say worm researchers end up studying worm aging rather than worm evolution. Now, Anthony Fauci is highly unlikely to be directly involved in most National Institute of Health grants, but long and various chains of professional interests will come together on a cloud that rains down 32 billion a year. And this cloud may help us understand strange fact patterns. Here's one fact. After Trump promoted the idea, Fauci repeatedly rubbished the use of the common cheap to produce drug hydroxychloroquine as a therapeutic or prophylactic for COVID-19. A second fact, studies conducted in North America of hydroxychloroquine effective in treating COVID are three to four times more likely to report negative results than studies of the same conducted anywhere else in the world. There is no obvious causal connection, but would you want your lab's name, your lab's name in the hot glaring sun embarrassing America's doctor, or would you want it under that fat federal cloud that rains buckets of money on you and your peers? Here's another odd fact pattern. The public health consensus around COVID-19 and the proper or necessary interventions to take against it shifts all the time. This consensus shapes public policy and leaks out into respectable mainstream news outlets. Most insidiously, it becomes encoded as a crazy official public mind that every individual on social media is obliged to repeat and share or else be subject to demonetization, warnings, censorship, and accusations of spreading disinformation. The polarization of our politics and of our public health elites has lessened with two categories of thought on COVID, the science and, da and dangerous, sometimes racist conspiracy theories. Half the time, the conspiracy theories become the science. 
belief in the efficacy of mass or in the lab leak theory made these transitions, but these shifts don't happen upon the publication of credible new scientific studies. There's almost no public jousting and argument among scientists and researchers. There's just a sliding from one position to another when it becomes safe. Long after these shifts take place, CDC guidance often comes to incorporate them. Credible scientific out evidence that outdoor transmission of the coronavirus was negligible was available in the late spring of 2020. Even as newspapers were still shaming people about being on beaches and a solo paddleboarder was arrested in California, Lord. But CDC guidance on outdoor activities and outdoor mask wearing didn't change for a year. We've long had evidence that children under 12 are far less likely to get seriously ill or die from COVID than they are from the flu. The scientific evidence is all there in the open that children are basically safe to gather together, but the mysterious scientific consensus hasn't developed to the point of making it safe to say this in public. It's as if doctors are afraid that pointing this out will make them vulnerable to accusations that they are providing aid and comfortable comfort to COVID skeptical parents. But Dr. Fauci does understand the science and so he could barely suppress his laughter when asked to explain on television why the CDC insists on young children wearing masks outdoors at summer camps this year, children who will be sleeping in the same indoor spaces with each other. Fauci has been the face of <clears throat> this shape-shifting consensus, even at its most ridiculous and at its most dishonest. <clears throat> in February 2020, Fauci dismissed the value of masks. If you look at the mask that you buy in a drugstore, the leakage around that doesn't really do much to protect you. He would later incorrectly claim that he had never earlier dismissed the medical value of masks, just advised against buying them, and only because of a shortage among medical and other frontline workers. But he did cite scientific reasons that the public wouldn't benefit from crummy masks. And subsequent studies have shown exactly that. Later, Fauci would explain the real value of masks. I want to make it to be a symbol for people to see that that's the kind of thing you should be doing, he said. The value was not medical, but symbolic. Masks were a reminder to be conscientious and afraid. Last April, Fauci denounced theories that the novel coronavirus might have escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology saying that the science showed the virus was totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. Most science journals followed him. A former Times science reporter said that the lab leak theory belonged in the same realm of nutty conspiracy theories as Pizzagate. Well, of course it did, when mentioning it in public was considered disinformation. While many new papers have been published on the origins of the virus, very little evidence has changed since last spring. But only in May of this year was Fauci willing to say that he's not entirely convinced it developed naturally. When confronted by hostile questions about his changing statements, Fauci says, like any good scientist, that he is just responding to new data as they come in. I haven't been wrong, period. He has insisted. 
But when talking to friendly media, he admits he tries to manipulate the public with lies rather than level with them. In April 2021, he told the New York Times when Pulse said only about half of all Americans would take a vaccine. I was saying herd immunity would take 70 to 75%. Then when newer surveys said 60% or more would take it, I thought I can nudge this up a bit. So I went to 80, 85. Manipulation and deceit like this are impossible to square with America's ethic of self-governance. Because of the strangely quiet and slippery consensus among the scientists, Fauci's public crits have tended to come from other fields. During the Trump years, they came from the economic side. Peter Navarro, the Harvard-trained economist and China hawk who served as an economic and trade policy advisor to Trump, wrote an op-ed in US Today, USA Today, pointing out many of the times that Fauci had been wrong during the pandemic. USA Today eventually published a groveling note apologizing to readers for publishing something critical of Dr. Fauci, but at the same time tried not to refute Navarro's claims, saying they were misleading or lacked context. That Fauci knows how to work the press is something that comes up many times when one speaks to people from Trump's COVID task force. I sent out a memo to the task force in February of 2020. Navarro explained in an interview with the National Review, saying we could have a vaccine as early as November and mass production up to 150 million doses. Fauci challenged me and went out on TV and said it would, could be well over a year or more. Next thing I know, I was getting attacked on CNN for what I was saying. They were actively taking Fauci's point of view. Others involved in the task force remarked on Fauci's ability to outleak the leakiest White House in living memory. Those who disagree with Fauci, even in private, will find themselves the subject of unflattering coverage almost immediately in the Washington Post. Navarro was correct. Fauci did go on to television to say it would take 18 months to develop a vaccine, but the vaccines were developed and went into mass production by the end of 2020. Navarro is just one example of many whose views during the COVID crisis that year were dismissed as disinformation. across the media at every single turn and who then watched as much of what they said either came true or was quietly rechristened as the new accepted view. Whatever Fauci's prior career achievements, he has shown in the COVID-19 pandemic that he is not the disinterested expert he claims to be. He survives in Washington, not just because he launders politics through science, and has an affable demeanor, but because he's also a cutthroat in the media game. Even when his critics are right, they get cashiered and Fauci wins more public accolades. After Biden won the election, Fauci went on a kind of post-Trump media tour, broadcasting his relief and detailing his problems with Trump. He broke his rule about not getting into politics and sticking to the science, leaving no doubt that he embraced his role in the resistance but the other shoe is yet to drop former new york times science writer nicholas wade who did as much as anyone to mainstream the lab leak theory of covid went on to point out another thing that only pizza gators were saying 15 months ago dr anthony fauci had been personally involved in lobbying to exempt gain-of-function research into coronavirus 
coronaviruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology from funding restrictions. Gain-of-function research takes viruses from animals in the wild to see which of them can be made more effective in humans in the lab. The theory is that by seeing which viruses can make the jump to humans, biologists can get ahead of the natural viral evolution and produce treatments faster. Dr. Shi Zheng Li, the virologist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, is known as China's Batwoman, and who said she wondered upon hearing of the outbreak whether the virus had escaped from her lab, has thanked Fauci in her papers before. Wade's report showed that the laws governing the flow of NIH money meant that either the director of the NIAD, Dr. Anthony Fauci, or the director of the NIH, Dr. Francis Collins, or maybe both would have been invoked would have invoked the exemption in order to keep the money flowing to Dr. Xi's gain-of-function research. At a May Senate hearing, Senator Rand Paul broke the seal on questioning Fauci about his personal involvement in, will be, in what would be the worst man-made disaster in history, a controversial lab research project, which many biologists have warned against, resulting in a virus escaping the lab and killing 3.5 million people while shutting down the world economy for a year. Fauci's denials turned on legalistic deflections. NIH hadn't directly funded the lab, he said. True, the agency had funded a research group that subcontracted to the Wuhan lab. Similar contortions were made to redefine gain-of-function research. If this is the last conspiracy theory and disinformation campaign to become transformed into the accepted wisdom, which may shortly occur, then Fauci will have to explain why it was that he accepted the role of pandemic hero in the first place, or why he joined a phony and flimsy consensus that the virus had emerged in nature, or why he so consistently downplayed the risk early on, given what he must have known or suspected the, the minute reports emerged of a coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, given that he's already told us lies because the public isn't ready for the truth, how likely are his denials to be believed? My theory is that Anthony Fauci is a sociopath, says Navarro. He knew full well the virus came from the lab. He knew full well that he was the one who reauthorized gain of function. And day after day, for nine months leading up to the election, he did not level with the American people. Is Navarro angry over how Fauci was lauded? You bet. It wouldn't be the first time that an outlandish and demonized theory about COVID-19 turned out to be the likeliest story. But in any event, America no longer needs a saint of the science. The resistance turned on and discarded every previous hero, whether it was Michael Cohen, Michael Avenatti, or even Robert Roller. Dr. Fauci broke his own rule. He got political, and now he's about to get in trouble. All right, so this is... Uh, you know, very great article breaking down how Fauci is going in the path of Robert Mueller, Mike Rabinati, Michael Cohen, everybody that went before him. They love you one day and then they toss you aside. And as I told you before in the previous podcast, um, even the Chinese media is not trashing Fauci. So very interesting turn of events. Um, cannot wait to see how this unfolds in the coming months. So Thank you guys for tuning into my podcast again today, and I will see you guys in the next video.